Today's scripture is Matthew 23, 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and do not call anyone on earth father. For you have one Father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, thank you. Good morning, everybody. How are we all? Last week was great. I was geeking out, nerding out, having a great time. If you weren't here, you don't know. Scott McKnight was here, and he taught everyone in like 45 minutes how to read an entire book of the Bible, known as Philemon. And uh, Philemon is, oh man, I wish I had like 20 minutes here just going on that. Um, just real quick, um, Philemon's a really important book, and, and he said some really good things that people kind of threw away. Uh, Philemon is at the end of the Pauline epistles, and I think that's perfect, because after you read everything of Paul, if you're not quite getting it, he like gives you a demonstration of how Christianity works in the book of Philemon, and it's great. So if you didn't listen to that, uh, go back and listen to that, and it was great. Um, so this week, this is our passage. We're still going through the book of Matthew, um, wrapping it up sometime this summer. Um, what are you laughing at? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, so um, today we're going to talk about Pharisees for a couple of minutes um, because they're uh, a misunderstood group of people, um, that a lot of things get said about them, but I, I, I want to be fair, okay? Uh, so Pharisees, and we're going to talk about some of these words, you know, phylacteries and tassels and fringes, all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk about all that stuff just for a minute, um, and, then, and then we're going to talk about sort of uh, an, uh, an idea of the audience of one, like who, who is it that we should care about? Who is it that, that, that we should think about is, is watching us at any given time? Because I think um, much of that is lost in, a, in an age where your entire life is curated for the public, okay? So I, I think we need to talk about that. So um, why don't we pray? Um, my name is Tommy. If you've never been here, if you were here last week, whatever, you don't know. My name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here, and uh, that's all you need to know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, thank you for every person that you've gathered here this morning. Um, I, I hold them all up to you, and I ask that you would uh, encourage them in exactly the way that they need um, I ask that you would give us um, some new perspectives this morning, some things that we haven't seen, some things we haven't um, really grasped, um, a, a puzzle piece that is missing of like how we should look at something. Um, speak through me, allow me to be present and, uh, and aware of what you're doing in this room uh, and allow me to just take part in it. And uh, um, I lift up all of our brothers and sisters who are not here, who are traveling, who are... Um, 
even those who are sleeping in, Lord. We lift them up too. And, uh, and, uh, and we, we ask that you would uh, encourage all of them and bless them with peace and joy. In your name, amen. All right. And convict them. Just joking. Okay, so uh, I'm going to start off today talking about Pharisees. And uh, I'm going to brighten my screen a little bit here. Um, okay. Modern readers have a, a difficult time with the Pharisees because we have a very long tradition going back um, well past Luther, um, all back Augustine and Anselm, um, uh, about very negative sort of blanket statements about the Pharisees. And uh, it's gotten to the point where modern readers don't actually know who the Pharisees are. Um, and the idea of the Pharisees has sort of, we've learned to call anyone who is sort of more conservative than us a Pharisee, or anyone who appears pious, anyone who confronts us on anything, um, we tend to call them Pharisees as if it's an insult um, and sort of throw them away, okay? And it makes sense that we would do that. We have a long history of, of equating the idea of a Pharisee with a negative thing. Um, I would point out some other examples in Scripture, though, of Jesus taking titles and redeeming them. Uh, in the ancient world, it was a complete insult um, uh, to be called a Samaritan. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And sort of redeems that. And now we talk about a hero like a good Samaritan. Like we've taken this ancient negative word and made it this positive thing. Um, so to be sure, there is a lot of negative stuff in the New Testament um, about the Pharisees that are in the story. Um, but I think if you want to have an honest assessment of who the Pharisees were. I mean, if you read, if you read Luther, he, he had a, a huge problem with the Catholic Church, which started the Protestant Reformation. Um, and his, he had tons and tons of insults for the Catholic Church. And he began to equate... The Roman Catholic Church, the oppressive church in his day, um, to the Pharisee movements. He just began to call them Pharisees. And then he read, sort of downloaded everything that he had said about the Catholic Church onto the Pharisees in the New Testament and sort of equated the two. Um, and oftentimes today we sort of do this as well. Um, however, and to have an accurate view of the characters in the scriptures, there's some things we need to, to know. You can read people like Josephus. Um, he's an ancient first century Roman historian who writes a lot about the Pharisees. And there's some things that he said. He's written two particular books I'm, I'm going to point out here. Is one of them is called uh, Bellum Jude- Judaicum, and the other one is called Antiquities. Um, if you're like a history buff, like an ancient civilization sort of major, you'll, you'll recognize these books, and maybe you have read them. Here's some things that I've pulled out of these books that he, he mentions about the Pharisees. He says, first off, they're considered the most accurate interpre- interpreters of the law. Um, they were the leading sect of the Jews. They were extremely influential among the townsfolk. Um, he attributed everything, they, they attributed everything to the sovereignty of God, although he didn't use the word sovereignty. Uh, he used a word that more often today we kind of translate as, as karma, but it's like this first century Greek sort of way that they would speak of sovereignty of God. Um, and so the things that Josephus says about the Pharisees, when you read that and then you hear how modern teachers talk about Pharisees today, you kind of see like, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so actually, while we had Scott McKnight here last week, I asked him about this. So I'm like, how would you define the Pharisees? Just shooting from the hip, right? Um, and here's what he said. Um, he said, the Pharisees were a Torah movement group, um, deeply devoted to knowing, interpreting, and applying the whole Torah to the life of Israel in order to restore Israel. They had a purpose. Um, they they didn't view themselves as bad people. They never intended to be a people who were oppressive. The, 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 um, the Pharisee movement went for about 
two or three hundred years, and they did a lot of incredible work um, and wrote a lot of incredible things that we still read today. Um, Paul was one of these people. Um, so it was intended to be a group of people who were, their whole, their whole shtick was, like, we, we're going to be the, uh, the people who interpret the scriptures um, um, more accurately than everyone else. That was their whole goal. Um, so when, when Jesus is fighting with the Pharisees, um, he's not doing what we're doing. Um, oftentimes we're labeling. Um, labeling is not a Christian thing at all. It is not something Christians should take part in. Labeling is, is something the kingdoms of the world do, where it's tribal. It's you divide everyone up and you give everyone terms, um, you know, liberal or like conservative or hipster or just whatever it is, um, SoundCloud rappers. You just give everyone, you just give everyone sort of a label and you ask somebody maybe a couple questions and then like really controversial ones, engage their opinion on that. And then you're like, okay. And so you have a bunch of boxes in your mind and you take them and you just put them in this one, put the lid on. And now you have sorted everyone in your life and you no longer need to have actual conversations with them. And there's no nuance and there's no like deep thinking. Everyone's labeled and, and you've put them all in your boxes. Okay. And um, this is distinctly unchristian. By the way, this is not something the Christians did. This is something Jesus fought constantly against. It's something Paul fought constantly against. It is, it is not the way Christians are supposed to live their lives and think about the people around them. Um, God has given us a way to think about the people around us. Um, images of God fallen um, in the process of being restored, right? Like, like we have a part to play in this, okay? So labeling is distinctly an unchristian thing. Um, it's inherently unchristian. Um, and, uh, and that should be thrown out. So when Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees, though, he has a lot of harsh things to say. But <clears throat> myself, people like McKnight, and, and other biblical scholars would, would argue that like, Jesus is not labeling all Pharisees everywhere. And he's not even battling Pharisaism. He's battling um, hypocrites, is what he's battling. Um, he's not critiquing the whole Pharisee movement at large, okay? Um, he is critiquing the hypocrisy that specifically the Pharisee movement in Jerusalem had um, and some different ones that he came in contact with. There are places in scriptures you, where you will read about um, some Pharisees who, who were righteous and who did the right thing and who Jesus invited to sit at the, temple, uh, at the table uh, with him. So Jesus' problem with this particular band of Pharisees, the ones in Jerusalem specifically, is that they're hypocrites. Um, not only that, there is some rub because they're, they're interpreting the scriptures differently. Uh, the, uh, they, didn't, they, 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 they got into it with one another, um, but they didn't differ on, on what was the word of God. They didn't differ on uh, the importance of Abraham, Moses, David, or the prophets. They had a lot in common. Jesus and the Pharisees had a lot in common with their teachings. Um, but they differed because Jesus believed that the Torah was about loving God and loving others, as he said in the previous passage. Um, and the Pharisees saw that the Torah was this comprehensive list of exactly how you're supposed to live so that God will do his work, um, as if you could earn God's entrance into the world. So, yes, they butted heads a lot. Um, the problem with the particular um, Pharisee movement in Jerusalem was that they were hypocrites. Um, whenever you see Jesus lashing out against them, it's because he either thinks that their, interpreting, uh, their interpretation of scriptures is unloving towards the people around them, and oppressive, um, or they're using their religion for personal gain. Both of these things Jesus is, is wildly upset about, okay? So, with that in mind, um, 
we are, we are going to dive into this passage today. We're going to start off right here in, uh, in verses 1 through 3. Then Jesus said to the crowd, so he's been debating the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, and he's just been going at it, having a good time, killing it. And then he turned around to talk to all the people who were gathered there, um, like observing the, like, the sparring match. And, and they're having a great time, I'm sure. Um, and they've been cheering, sort of like last week like we talked about. They've been cheering and they've been like interacting and throwing out ideas. And it's a very lively, lively way of existing, sort of in the first century Judaism in the temple. So Jesus turns and gathers all the peasants who were there and who are there offering their sacrifices. And he turns to the crowd and he says to his disciples in verse 2, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in, the, sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat is a, a literal seat that they called Moses' seat. It was at the entrance to the gate. It's where, it's where the elders of the community would judge sort of legal matters, okay? Um, so you must be careful um, to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So what you see here is um, he's not denigrating them. He is affirming their authority. Um, he's not belittling, but he's saying, so he's saying like, the teachings of the Pharisees in general are important, and you should listen to them. You should respect their authority. Um, however, listen to their teachings because they're teaching about the Torah. Don't listen. Don't, don't pay attention and, and live by their example that they're, that they're doing. So um, basically, he's critiquing. He's not, he's not describing Phariseeism. He's critiquing hypocrites. So this is how you should think about this. Um, this is all about hypocrisy and the way that they were supposed to live. And then... This passage, the entire next section is line after line of everything that they are doing that is hypocritical, that spiritual leaders ought not do, that any leaders ought not do. Um, and they're, they're very specific, but you can generalize these things, okay, if you want. So let's work our way through them. There's like four or five verses here. In verse four, it says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Um, so he starts off saying, their teachings, um, the way that they're living, uh, the religion that they're offering you is oppressive. They don't care whether or not it actually helps you. They don't care if it hurts you. They don't care. Um, and this is a really important thing. In the mind of Jesus, there is a test of, of an ethical interpretation of Scripture. And I want you to ponder that phrase. Because most people never think about the fact that there is ethical and, and, and unethical ways to interpret the scriptures. Um, there are ways which hurt people. Um, there are ways which, have, which prolong slavery for a very long time. There, is, there are ways that are still being taught today that, that prolong the, uh, the, the oppression of, of female voices in the church. There are lots of ways of using the scriptures that denigrate people groups. Um, and so at some point, the church should have these conversations about what, what does it mean to have an ethical interpretation of Scripture and an unethical interpretation of Scripture. Um, I would offer just a simple few points, and then, I would, and then I'm going to keep moving. Um, uh, but basically, uh, a simple test of the ethical interpretation of Scriptures. Um, very simple. Um, number one, does it, does it create wings to lift people up or a dead weight to drag them down? Um, does it make people feel, does it lighten their load? Or does it make their life more difficult? Or does it weigh them down in that way? Like, um, on emotional level, all over the place. And, and that goes along with number two. Does it bring about joy or depression? Um, there are ways of describing how God views people that are intended to, to tear people down lower and lower and lower and lower until they get to a point um, where they have nothing left good to say about themselves. Um, and then they say, and at that point, they'll start saying good things about God. And then they'll shift and... 
I, I get what you're doing. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what Paul did. That's a particular way of interpreting the scriptures um, through some lenses that we have been handed through the centuries. Um, it's not helpful. Um, and I think if, if you realize that your teachings of scriptures are, are literally making people depressed um, and, 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 and sucking the joy out of their everyday life, um, I, I would argue you should contemplate whether or not your interpretation is, is ethical or not, whether or not it's actually what Jesus was intending for it to be. Uh, number three, are people helped by it or are they haunted by it? Very simple. Uh, when I was a kid, I was terrified about, like, I believed in certain things, like, that, that things like the rapture and stuff, which I guess we're going to be talking about when we get to, like, a few later chapters, Matthew 25 and stuff. We'll talk about some eschatology, which means study of the end times. And um, I had these beliefs that just terrified me. And I would wake up and get out of bed, and I, I'd be like, Mom, Dad? And they were, like, outside, but, like, I'm little, and I don't venture outside. And they were gone, and I'd be like, there's a shirt on the floor. My parents have been raptured. I'm alone. <laughs> and just, it's terrifying. I'm like, I'm, like, six, right? Like, I'm terrified. Um, are people helped by it? Or are they haunted by it? Does it carry them, or do they have to carry it? Is it really, like... It is intended to be a place like a wellspring of life within you that you draw strength uh, uh, and wisdom from and that, that you, you go to your faith and, and prayer and the spiritual disciplines to be filled up instead of like, like if, if you're causing people to drag this faith and always having to defend it, always having to like stand up for it in the face of everyone else, if, if this is how you're giving people their faith, at some point, they will come to a place where they decide that it's just not worth the effort, and they will let go. I, I grew up with many, many, many friends who grew up. I was, I was like, a, a, um, like a, a Bible Institute director's kid. Um, I heard a lot of Bible growing up. Um, far more random information than the other average person would ever pick up about the Bible. <laughs> I guess that's how we got here. Um, and then um, so many of my friends did as well. Many of them are now just, they've just let go. They're all atheists out there. And they're just, they want nothing to do with the church. Um, they drag this thing really far. And I commend them uh, for, for, for dragging it as far as they did in the face of, of really difficult times. But there came a point where like this thing never gave them life. So they let it go. Okay. Um, there is a way to build your faith. If this is happening in the opposite direction, like it's time to rebuild. Okay, um, so let's, let's go to the next thing he just, Jesus says about these Pharisees, these particular ones. Everything they do uh, is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. I hate it when the phylacteries are wide and tassels. Okay, now, let's, um, let's talk about this um, real fast. There's this passage in, in Deuteronomy 6. We sing about it sometimes. Um, we will hold in our hands, we will tie to our heads um, the things that you said. There, there's this passage in Deuteronomy 6, there's another one in Exodus 31, I believe, about the law um, and how, how they were to handle it. And there was these descriptions of the verses that said things like, it shall serve for you as a sign on your hands, as a reminder on your forehead. And they were very literal interpreting, very literally interpreting this thing. And what they would do is they would, they would take these scriptures and they would say, well, let's do this literally. Let's put the scripture on our foreheads. Let's put it on our arms, on our forearms. And so they have these things called phylacteries. There are these boxes you would put on your head, um, things you would wrap around your arm right here. And this is a father at the, at, the, at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem teaching his son how to do the prayers. Um, and in these boxes would be um, these particular passages of scripture that describe this. On top of that, uh, whoa, what was that? I don't know what that was. On top of that, 
Props, guys. Um, on top of that, we have these prayer shawls that they would wear because originally there was um, these commands that they would have these tassels on the edge of their garments, um, but their garments were designed and, and, and supposed to be described as being squared off, sort of so that you would be wrapped in the tassels, if you, if you would. Uh, so they're basically wrapped in, in the law. Um, and then they would, they would these, call these your wings, and they would long to take shelter under the wings, right? And you enter your prayer closet like this, and you put it over your head, and you enter into your prayer closet. You'll see all this language in scriptures. And they would hold the tassels, and they would um, pray and be reminded and, and pray that they would be surrounded and wrapped in the law. And this is how sort of they would do their daily prayers. Um, however, the Pharisees in Jesus' day would go a little, a little far, and they would have these giant sort of, I guess, boxes on their heads and on their arms so that everyone could see how pious they were. But like, man, I bet they have like an entire scroll in there. Like I picture like Minecraft head, right? Like huge thing. Um, and then they would have these tassels, but maybe these would be like, like super long that they would drag on the ground when they walked and they would just wrap this entire thing like around their whole body, right? Uh, whatever they were doing, apparently it was, it was offensive to Jesus. He would see them um, putting on this show for everyone to see and everyone to watch. I'm going to put that right there. There you go. And the drummer is not here. He'll have no idea what's going on. Um, now, um, and so Jesus says, why are you doing this for everyone to see? This is all a show. Um, and then he has more. He says, uh, they love the place of honor at the banquets, the most important seats in the synagogues. Um, when you go to a banquet, um, the most honorable seats are to the right and the left of the hosts. And you would like literally lounge and like lean on their chests and you would eat and Weird to us, but to them it was like super cool. Um, and then uh, the most important seats in the synagogue were the ones in the center. The children, the, so there's these benches, oh, behind the drum set. There's some benches back there that run along the edge of the synagogue. This is the synagogue in Capernaum, um, the town of Jesus. Um, and then there would be sort of these chairs, sort of thrown kind of chairs that would sit facing everyone else who was on the sides and on the back looking in. And the Pharisees were the ones who wanted to sit, sort of like I grew up going to. Um, like Southern Baptist churches where there would be these giant sort of chairs on the stage and there'd always be four old white men sitting up there like feet up like this, just like scowling and like you didn't dare nod off because they would see you and they would talk to you about it. But basically it's this show of like, here's who's in charge. Here is the ones that are like making everything happen. It's the place of honor. And they, and they would literally sometimes debate about who gets to sit on the on the thrones this week behind the pastor, right? And you could put on this show of piety. This is what the Pharisees would do. They would, um, in Jesus, in these particular Pharisees in Jesus' time, they would put on this sort of show of like pious prayer. They would wrap themselves in their prayer shawls and they would, they, you could see them worshiping. Um, and next up, Jesus says, verse seven, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Now, um, when you read this text uh, in the original languages, um, the words that Jesus uses, um, if you read them, how they're connected to, sort of Ar- to Aramaic and Hebrew, um, there is a sound to these words that we lose in the English language that uh, when he speaks to the original audience, they would pick up on. Here, let's read this. Um, Matthew 23, 8 through 11. But you, brother, so he describes them. They love to be called teacher and rabbi, okay? They just love titles. Um, this is also a huge thing in, in churches. I, I grew up seeing people with honorary doctorates, um, all kinds of just like you search here a long time. Was, and then, we, then they literally call each other doctor. I've had people correct me uh, and, and, and correct me and say, it's, it's doctor, Ron, something, something, Swanson. Um, and... and <laughs> 
doc, sorry, doctor. Um, and now I have this joke, and I'm going to be like, doctor, doctor. You'll hear me do it in the lobby a lot. It's fun. Um, and uh, I think I learned it from the Muppets. Um, and there's just this way that you would talk to people, and it was just these labels really, really mattered. Um, Scott McKnight actually told us once, he's like, don't, don't call me doctor, don't call me professor. If after three years of, of studying under me and me knowing you, um, if you're still calling me doctor, that means I've failed. And he says, and if your people are still calling you pastor after a few years, you've failed. Um, I'm like, interesting. Like, title, not, not like office, right? Like, if they're still using titles, if you're not like a human being, um, you're missing it. Because that's not what Jesus was doing. Whenever people call him the Messiah, he's just like, Shh, hey, hey, chill. Keep that down, okay? Um, and so he said, so he gathers the people and he turns to them and he says, but you are not to be called a rabbi for you have one teacher and you, and, and you are all brothers. And, and um, the Greek is actually, just so you know, the Greek is actually more inclusive. Um, and that will probably be updated in the NIV not too long. You are all brothers. Uh, do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. So, He's addressing the titles thing. He says, he says <clears throat> these teachers that you have are learning everything they have from one teacher, the message given to them by God. So instead of looking at this person, um, look straight past them to God, and they should actually be pointing past themselves as well. Um, should you choose to give them uh, the title and call them by it, that's just simply a sign of respect because they have done something for you, and that's great. Um, but by and large, um, we have one audience we have one person whom we, whom we really honor with the title. Others under him, we are, we are all equal. It's God. Everyone under God is equals and are serving each other in different ways. They just happen to know things about the law that they can teach you, okay? Um, now, what I was saying, um, if you look at, at, at how the, sort of the roots of the Aramaic and Hebrew words here, the word rabbi, uh, let me put some stuff up here. The word rabbi is a word that simply means my greatness. It's a word rabboni, rab is, is the word for greatness. Um, so to call someone rabbi meant they would literally like, my greatness, I have a question. Um, and, and once you kind of hear it in that context, you can see how it would rub Jesus the wrong way, right? Um, uh, they were even calling Jesus rabbi and teacher and, and stuff like that. Uh, and he says, um, they love to be called rabbi, my greatness. He says, don't do that. Um, and then in verse 11, he says, um, the greatest among you will be your servant. So again, the root of greatest among you is rab. So, so he's doing a play on words. You call them great. Um, here's what he's basically saying. Um, that's not the rab. This is the rab, right? Like, like, it's not the Pharisee, it's the servant. And so he's sort of speaking to them. He's like, how do you know? How do you know the greatest among you? Well, depending on who you are, you're going to answer this differently. If you're, if you're in high honor society, you're going to say, the one who knows the most and who has the most power. Um, and Jesus would look at them and he would say, um, if, you, if you, all you in high honor society are trying to figure out which one of you is the greatest, it's, it's, it's the servant who is serving you. He's the one you should look at as the greatest. It's, it's none of you. And then it's sort of like you speaking to the lowest and saying, um, who is the greatest? So when you ask low honor society this question of who is the greatest among you, they're going to think of society at large and they're going to say, who, who is it that I'm going to emulate? Who's, who's my leader? Who do I want to follow? Who do I want to be like? And Jesus says, if you're going to choose a leader, choose the leader that's actually serving you, that cares about you, that is, that is 
that is present, um, that actually cares about your well-being, about your joy, about your journey, not just the one that makes the most demands and who holds back his affirmations of you until you hit a certain level. He says, be very careful about how you think about greatness. Do not follow people who do not love you and do not care. Okay. All of this is, is a huge message to these people standing around listening who are surrounded by leaders. Um, <clears throat> so, there's, a, there's this hunger for titles um, and, and public awards in human life, especially in religious life, that's really astonishing. And there's, there's a simple idea here that Jesus wants his people to take away. And, and I'm going to put it in the positive and the negative. So, let's start off with this. You are not a slave to external forms. Um, you are not a slave to anything around you, okay? Um, like, like Paul said in Philemon, I'm, I'm a slave to God. He's likening himself because he has another slave whom he's a friend with. And so he's actually lowering himself and likening himself to the slave. He says, um, you, you are not a slave to anything around you. You are only um, supposed to be serving God. And here's what this means. Um, you are not a slave to all those with titles. You are not a slave to uh, your journey. You're not a slave to the job that you do, um, how people view you, what they call you, whether or not they hold you in high or low esteem. It should not determine the choices you make, the words that you say, the things that you believe, or how you respond. Um, None of this should determine any given moment the choices that you make, any external thing. The, The choices that we make should be based upon one thing, an audience of one. How do I respond to this particular thing? Who is Lord? Who is King? It is, it is Christ. Christ is King. No other earthly leader or political leader or anything is King. Jesus alone is King. And my response will, will be accordingly. Also, um, let me add to that. Um, you are not a slave to the absence of external forms. Um, you, in other words, um, the lack of what people call you, whether or not they speak to you with respect or not. Some culturally constructed titles or pieces of paper that, that we call diplomas and doctorates and degrees and masters and PhDs. Like, you are not a slave to the absence of these things. These are, these are human constructs that we have created. Um, you are not a slave to the number in your bank account, to the type of car that you drive, to the neighborhood that you live in, to the family you were born into. You are not a slave to any of these things. Um, in the grand scheme of things, this is not how Christians should be thinking. And when, when everything is made whole again, truly none of these things will exist. But oftentimes we are such a slave to these external sort of human constructs that did not exist even 150 years ago, and now they they matter so much. They will not exist in the future either. And we spend all of our time slaving to achieve these things that we believe are missing that will give us what we are looking for. Um, Some culturally constructed achievement. Why? Jesus is king. Okay, Um, the great Dallas Willard in in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, writes this. He says, uh, when we want human approval and esteem and do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because by our wish, it does not concern him. This goes along with the personal nature of God and of our relationship to him. God knows when he is wanted and when he is not. Where people are really seeking a response from someone else, he does not intrude, generally speaking. So when our aim is to impress human beings with how devout we are, he lets us do that, and he stands aside. This is exactly what Jesus taught about these same Pharisees in Matthew 5. He said, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by others. Surely I tell you, they have received their reward in full. 
When we practice the disciplines, when we practice our faith, when we do worship, when we give, when we serve, um, this should have nothing to do with whether or not people see it or whether or not we are living up to other people's expectations, even in your own church. We live up to the expectation that God has for us, which is to meet the needs of others and to be filled up so that we can pour ourselves out. But it has nothing on any level to do with how people view you. This should not affect how you serve, how your faith, um, how your faith works, works itself out um, at all. Um, and when he says they, will, they have received their reward in full already, but what he's basically saying is when you live in a way, when you do these good deeds and you pray loudly in public in a way that makes other people look at you, um, that is your reward. Congratulations. Like you've had it. But what, what is not going to happen is you're not going to gain anything from this, anything else. You're not going to grow. You're not going to learn. You're not going to become more godly um, with this type of activity, with self-centered giving. Giving that is, that is about you. Um, I, uh, several years ago, went to lunch with somebody who scheduled a meeting with me. Right off the bat, I kind of realized, like, oh, okay, this is somebody who's, who's brand new to the church, but he's, but he's been, like, in the church business world for, like, a long time. And he's, he's, he's already talking a lot about his, his uh, titles and, and sort of, you know, how people name drop. You know, like constantly through conversation randomly. And we're talking, and we're at a public, a public place, a place where I know the bartenders and the waiters and waitresses, and, and I hang out there regularly. Um, and at some point we're talking, and he stops, and, he go, and the food came, and he goes, and he goes I'll, I'll pray for you. And he stands up, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, puts one hand in the air, and loudly starts praying loudly so that everyone in the entire bar can hear. Um, instantly, like, alarms in my head are going off. And I, like, I'm, I'm like... I stand up, and this makes people mad when I tell them this sometimes. I stand up, and I kind of put my hand on his shoulder and, like, shake him out of it. And I look at him and what are you doing? I'm praying to thank God for the food. I'm like, no, you're not. You're not praying to God. You're praying to all these people. Like, this is not what we do. And that meeting did not go well for the rest of the time. <laughs> and then eventually... Eventually, uh, there was like a power move where he's like demanding a spot of, of, of authority and, and position in the church and, and, and blowing my doors in through email, all kinds of stuff. Like this exists. This is very regular in the church. You have to understand this. Maybe you struggle with this, this desire for influence and power. And, and, um, and I think the last conversation we had was, was this demanding to meet with me and I said no I'm, I'm taking my daughter out to dinner like she's six and she wants to go out to dinner with her dad I'm taking her I could get a mega church pastor on the phone in 15 minutes click like I'm like it's not this is not what Christianity is supposed to be when you are choosing when you are choosing who to follow who to emulate do not worry about the amount of followers that they have or how snazzy like their life appears to be, or their curated things that they have shown you, or how eloquent even they are. None of it. Do, do they care about you and the people around you? Are they serving? Are they drawing close to the people around them? Or, you know, when we practice piety in public like that, we're otherizing people. We're pushing them away. Everyone in that space felt otherized instantly. And had Jesus been there, I, I think he would have shut it down and got on his hands and knees and served everyone. Maybe help the waitress, like get up and, and serve. Um, piety otherizes people. It pushes them down in a way when we should be familiarizing ourselves with people and serving them, lifting them up and drawing them close. And it's, and it's, 
oftentimes difficult when you find yourself doing really well uh, in your spiritual life, in your faith world, in your faith journey, to keep that in check because it, you begin to turn into this, this pious sort of hypocrite. Um, this is one of the reasons that we have so many church disciplines, that, 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 that through the ages that we have been, we have been handed liturgy from, from, from the church uh, mothers and fathers that have gone before us. Liturgy is very important. Um, spiritual disciplines are very important because we are sinful people. And even when we pray, we have to remember that we are sinful people, which is why liturgy is important. Because it tells us oftentimes, you should be praying this. You should be thinking along these lines. Pray these prayers with me. Yes, have your free-form prayer here and there. But you should be regularly like, this is why reading the Psalms is so important. Reading the Proverbs is important. Um, reading Lamentations. Um, reading the Scriptures in general. Because it, instead of sitting and pondering God, it's, it's here's how you should think about God. Okay? Um, so there's a few disciplines. Um, and each discipline is intended to give you sort of a different aspect of your faith and to flex some certain muscle. Um, Oh, shoot, we're pretty far. I'm going to rush through this. Okay, now, one of the disciplines is the discipline of secrecy. Very important discipline. Um, um, Secrecy, basically, it it works like this. Uh, Giving in ways that it it cannot be tracked so that nobody knows. I had a... I used to work at a, at a summer camp, um, and we, I was a counselor. We had what were called unit leaders, and I had a unit leader who, back in the, in the, in the, in the mid-'90s, like 96, it was super cool for the skateboarders to go shop at, like, thrift stores and buy all their junky clothes there, and we would just look as trashy as we possibly could, right, and just cover everything with patches and all kinds of stuff. And he knew that me and, me and my friends, we were, we were going we to go down to the, the thrift store and buy some clothes, um, and he said, do me a favor. Here's 20 bucks. I want you to put it in in the pocket of a blazer at, at the Salvation Army. I was like, why? He's like, because anyone going to the Salvation Army to buy a blazer um, needs a suit for probably some kind of job or some nice occasion, and they don't have money to buy a nice suit. And so they're going to go there and going to do that. And the blazer is going to cost like maybe $10, and they're going to buy it, and they're going to find $20 in the pocket. And then I bought somebody a suit for an interview. And I was like, wow. That was like my, my first experience with like secret giving. Right? Like, you don't get a tax write-off for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's no, what's the benefit there? It's just a discipline. Um, uh, serving people in secret ways, anonymous donations, giving in such a way that you don't receive any incentives. Like, it can't be tracked back to you. Um, nothing. There was, there's, there's rabbis in the first century in the, Pharisee, in the Pharisee movement who would walk through poor parts of town and they would, they would um, put their hands, they had holes in their cloaks and they would, um, get bags of money, and they would sort of tilt them over. They put their hands on their cloaks, and they would walk, and they would sort of kick coins off their feet in different directions for for the poor, peop- for the poor people to find and provide for them in these ways. Um, this is an ancient discipline going back a very long time. It's it's exercising a muscle. The 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 um one of the, one of the reasons we typically give is to make ourselves feel really good, but also to help other people um, look at us really well. Um, this is like fasting for the ego, right? That's what this is. Like we fast to like, no, I'm not going to have food. I'm going to show that I, I'm stronger than my physical urge to, to eat and I'm going to conquer the flesh. This is like conquering your, your spirit. Like I'm, it's fasting for the ego. I'm going to pour myself out and receive nothing. Um, and, and the whole point of this practice, this gift is, is that eventually this will be how you give in general. Not for anyone to see. Um... By the way, this, we've set Watermark up this way so that none of the spiritual leaders in the church, no one on the entire governing board knows who gives what. None of us do. 
So if you give, I don't know about it. And I like that. Because if I need to talk to you about something serious, I have no fear that you're going to leave because I don't know whether or not you give. <laughs> so there we go. Um, next up is the discipline of silence. And this is a huge one. Um, the discipline of silence works itself out like this. Um, it is releasing control of your image. Um, not using words to adjust others' image of us, not defending ourselves uh, maybe until you're asked, why did you make this decision? Why did you make that decision? One of the reasons we can hardly bear to remain silent uh, is because it makes us feel helpless. Uh, We are accustomed to relying upon our words to manage and control how people view us. We have to speak up. We have to say, you've misinterpreted me over here. I just want to correct it just so you continue thinking highly of me. Uh, This is... we. Every conversation, if, if you get really good at this, and a lot of people are very good at this in this day and age, um, every conversation is a micro-adjustment of how people view you. It's very, if you pay attention to your own words daily, you will realize this is like 90% of what you're doing. Trying to adjust your image in the eyes of other people. And it will reveal to you just how enslaved you are to the image of others. Um, but because if we're silent, then who's going to take control? Someone's got to, right? Who's going to take control? God's going to take control. Um, God will take control, uh, but, but oftentimes we, we don't let him take control because we don't trust God. So how do we learn to trust God? Um, this is how. There's a discipline of silence. Trusting that, like, you don't, I'm not going to defend myself. There's, I, there's people saying things, talking gossip about me. I'm just going to, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm going to let God do this. Um, and when God does, you actually learn to trust God a little more. And you learn to be more honest. And you learn to be more forward. And you learn to be more serious and, and meaningful about the words that you use. And it's not about you anymore. It becomes about the kingdom. This is a very important um, thing. Because the tongue is our most powerful weapon of manipulation. Uh, the frantic streams of words that flow from our mouths, this is constant constant um, process of of adjusting your public image. Um, And we fear so deeply what other people see in us that we we talk in order to straighten out their understanding of us. Even if we do something that is misconstrued as bad, even if we do something good and someone misconstrues misconstrues what happened, we have to run to them and be like, just so you know, here's why I did this. Just so you know. It doesn't matter what they know. Why did you actually do it? Was it actually because it is your calling in the sense of the cosmic hierarchy of the universe or because Janet saw you and had questions? Like, why did you do what you did? <laughs> Janet. Just, it's fun to throw names out. Um, now, um, Richard Foster. Can't go a couple months without quoting him. Here we go. Uh, Silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit simply because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. One of the fruits of silence is the freedom to let God be our justifier. We don't need to straighten others out. You don't need to. I've had people regularly come up to me, you know, I heard something about you. I'm like, well, continue just keeping it to yourself that heard it. I don't care. I've heard gossip about me too that I'm like, wow, I believe that? Crazy. Like, I let it go. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. They're, audience of one. We collectively have an audience of one. There's the story of this ancient medieval monk who was being unjustly accused of certain offenses. And he eventually was arrested for it, something he didn't do. And he's crying out to God, and he's praying. He's like, God, they're, they're destroying my life. None of this is me. None of it. And as he, as he was praying, he looked out the window after a prayer, and he sees a dog um, tearing at a rug, an ancient a rug on a line, and he's tearing at it, he's ripping holes in it. 
And he felt the spirit of God speak to him and say, hey, look at that rug and look at what that dog is doing to that rug. He's like, that's what's happening to your reputation right now. And we'll admit that. We'll be forthright about that. But do you trust me? Do you trust me with, with your image? This is what's happening to your reputation. If you will trust me, I will care for you, reputation and all. And for, we've all been here. Over the years, if you lead anything long enough, you'll receive emails, phone calls, text messages, whatever. You will hear gossip about yourself where people are trashing your image. The response is not to be a hypocrite um, like these particular Pharisees who run around making sure everyone knows how devoted and how, like, just public, like, look how pious I am and managing your image. This is not how it is. I, I've been through seasons, even several years ago, where I went through seasons of biting and tearing at my reputation through, through letters written and, and this and that. Um, and it's hard. It is because you just want to run around and tell everyone, you're wrong. This is what happened. You're wrong. This is what happened. But in the end, you may not get your say. There are Plenty of places where I never did get my say. I never got to sit down with people and look them in the eye and say, here was my motivation and here's why. And if you understood this, you would think differently about it. You may not ever get that. You may, God forbid, just have to move on with your life with people thinking negative things about you. Who is your audience anyways? You cannot control that. You can't do it. It's very common to experience this, you and I may never get our say, our chance to repair the tears in the rugs from the dog bites, and perhaps we may come to find that because of the things in our past, because of what they're doing to us, we are, we are stronger and more able to handle what is actually coming in the future. There will be people in your position later, and you will have a story to tell. Same thing happened to me. I'm still alive. It's okay. I still have a life. I'm, it's, I'm still moving. I'm still out here doing my thing. If anything, I'm stronger. If anything, I'm, I'm more reliant on one audience and not, and not everyone around me. Um, perhaps more than anything else, silence brings us to believe that God can care for us, reputation and all. Because if we don't learn to practice things like silence and, and secrecy in our walk, in our faith... There's another path that leads towards hypocritical Phariseeism. It is, it is the opposite end. And these are what the spiritual disciplines are about. Okay? Um, as we move into the next passage over the next few weeks, we're going to get into all what's called the woe passages. Woe to you who do this. Woe to you who do this. And it's like an opposite picture of the beginning of Matthew 5, of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's really beautiful. And so this is going to be a time of really searching our hearts. Um, I'm going to be praying for you that you, your hearts will be open and that you will be honest with yourselves and each other and learn to repent and learn to adjust yourselves accordingly in light of what Jesus um, says to us. So let's pray. Our, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room if you would. Um, and uh, communion is something we do every single week. I invite you to take communion with us. Um, and uh, you don't have to be a member or anything. I, I want to invite you to the table of Christ. Um, his body was broken for you. His blood was poured out for you. He suffered and died um, proclaiming um, the message of God and reaching out for reconciliation and pouring out salvation upon all of us. So let's pray, and then we'll spend some time in communion, shall we? Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our time together in communion and, and uh um, as people go out and spend the day together, as they have lunch and, and uh, 
I ask that you would bring things to their mind that they could confess to each other and unload on each other and, and bear each other's burdens. Help us to learn to be a people who are not pious, who are humble, who serve. Um, let us see the greatest among us as those who are present and there and pouring themselves out. Um, let it not be based upon title or position. Um, more than anything, let us become like you. Thank you. In your name, amen. Take some time in communion. Talk to Jesus.